Well, our sermon this morning is going to begin in the book of Ephesians. And so I would encourage you to find your way there. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be in verse 15. You'll find that on page 976 in the Pew Bible in front of you. In fact, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible in the Pew Rack as our gift to you. And so Ephesians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 15. We'll find ourselves in week number 3 in this series on the church, a new covenant people. As we explore who it is that God calls us to be and, and what is it we're supposed to do as a church. And so I look forward to considering this further with you this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 15. Hear now the Word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Father, we thank you for this time in which we can now come and set our hearts upon your word. And we ask that you would help us to hear from you. We rejoice in your scripture that you have given it to us, that you might reveal yourself to us. The way of salvation, the way that we are to live and to follow and to worship. We pray that you would help us to grow in our delight of it and our obedience to it. For it is your word and your will for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the Christian speaker, Tony Campolo, uh, once flew from Philadelphia to Hawaii to speak at a conference there in Hawaii. Because of the six-hour difference in time, he found himself hungry and awake at 3 a.m. And so he decided to go and search for food. He found his way to somewhat of a seedy cafe, and sitting next to him, he overheard two women have a conversation They happened to be prostitutes. One of the ladies' name was Agnes. Agnes told her friend, tomorrow is my birthday. Her friend asked her, well, are you going to have a party? In which Agnes replied, I have never had a birthday party in my life. Well, after they had finished their meal, Tony approached the owner of the diner, a man named Harry. He said, do you know those women who are sitting next to me? Harry said, of course I do. They're in every night. I know them very well. He says, well, do you know tomorrow is Agnes' birthday? Let's throw her a party when she comes in tomorrow night. And so Harry agreed. Tony said, I'm going to go out and buy the decorations tomorrow, and and I'm going to to, uh, get a cake. And and if you know any of her friends, you can invite them. He says, I I know all of her friends. And so um, they went with this plan. The next night at 2.30 a.m., Tony came back to the diner and began to decorate this little cafe and set out the birthday cake. And and friends began to show up around 3 a.m., in which Tony soon realized they're all prostitutes there filling this this diner at that hour. And at 3.30 in the morning, Agnes walks in and everyone jumps out and shouts, Happy birthday! Well, Tony writes of her reaction. She was utterly, utterly stunned. She couldn't stand up. She just sat down and was crying. She tried to blow the candles out but couldn't because she was crying so much. It was just too much. So Harry blew out the candles and handed her a knife. She said, can we wait a minute? Do we have to eat it right now? In fact, I live right around the corner. I I want to keep the cake. And so they said, sure. And so she got out and took the cake and ran out saying, I'll be right back. And there stood Tony, Christian speaker, next to Harry, in a cafe at 3.30 a.m., full of prostitutes, and an incredibly awkward silence. And so Tony, 
perhaps sensing the work of God in his heart, said, what do you say we pray for Agnes? And so they agreed. Tony describes his prayer with these words. So I pray for Agnes' salvation and that her life will be changed and that God will be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over and said, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? Tony thought for a moment and said, I belong to the type of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 a.m. Harry thought for a moment and then with some hostility in his face said, no, you don't. There is no church like that. If there was a church like that, I would join it. I would join a church like that. I wonder what kind of church brings in the Harrys of the world. What kind of faith community produces such love and grace-filled life that, that others are compelled by it to come in? I would assume it's a faith community that understands that our salvation is all by God's grace, that our life is all sustained by God's grace, which makes it both life humbling and freeing. It is a church that believes Jesus Christ is our only hope, that He is the final sacrifice, that He is our righteousness, that He is our high priest, that He is the resurrected Lord, that He intercedes for us, that He is coming soon, that He alone is our peace. It is a church that believes Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it has to start there, an understanding of grace. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian. We're thankful that you could be here with us this morning. We want you to understand that we believe that, that God invites us to have a relationship with Him that will forgive all of our sins that we have committed against Him, not because we are good or righteous or worthy, but because He is merciful. And that we come here even today, not because we think we're better than anyone else, but because we think we have been covered by the grace and mercy of God, which is purchased for us through the death and resurrection of His Son. Amen. I invite, I would love to talk to you more about that. Perhaps afterwards, sometime this, this week or next week. It is a church that understands that. But it's also a church that understands there are massive implications of the grace of God upon us in the context of the church. It's a church that understands that the grace of God is not stop for me to go and live my life, but it actually changes how I relate to you and how you relate to me. It's a church that understands that it is because of the grace of God that we draw near to God together. And that we hold on fast to the hope of our confession together. And that we stir one another up towards love and good deeds together. I think a church like that, that will live committed to one another, in community to one another, will draw the world in, will propel us towards Jesus, will glorify our Father. I believe that's the kind of church. A church is designed by God that we might share lives together, that we might live in committed community together. This is why the Bible is constantly teaching us how we are to relate to one another. Do you realize that? Scripture page after page says do this to one another, do this to one another, do this to one another, because it assumes you and I, as we follow Christ, will do it in community. We'll do it with one another. For instance, the Bible tells us 17 times to love one another. It tells us five times to serve one another. We are to accept one another, strengthen one another, help one another, encourage one another, care for one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, and commit to one another. We are to build trust with one another, be devoted to one another, be patient with one another, be interested in one another, be accountable to one another, confess sins to one another. The Bible further instructs us to exhort one another, to not be conceited towards one another, to do good to one another, do not slander one another, instruct one another, greet one another, admonish one another, spur one another on. We are told by God to meet with one another, agree with one another, be concerned for one another, be humble with one another, be hospitable with one another, and be compassionate to one another. Furthermore, he says, do not be angry with one another, do not lie to one another, do not grumble with one another, bear with one another, give preference to one another, be at peace with one another. We are to sing to one another, be of the same mind with one another, comfort one another, honor one another, be kind to one another, and carry one another's burdens. See, friend, God has never intended the Christian life to be lived in isolation. 
It is to be lived with one another. Fifty-nine times God commands us, exhorts us, instructs us in how we are to live within this community. Deep, robust relationships where we propel one another on towards Jesus and bring glory to God as we share these lives with one another. This is what God intends for us. And I know, and even speaking on this, I'm, I'm somewhat fighting against the grain of the religious culture in which we find ourselves in. Um, this, is, this is ideas, is not, I guess, I guess the church in the West is rarely considered a community of faith. Seems like the church, at least in my estimation, is more and more marketed as a place where you receive spiritual services. The church is a place where you go get a good sermon, you hope, or moving music, or helpful children's programs, or safe place for your teens to hang out on Friday night. And we have this idea that the church is there, exists to serve me and provide me with certain spiritual services. Then, then the church becomes good as long as it's helpful, as long as it's convenient for me, as long as it's selling what I'm buying. And the church becomes this grocery store for Jesus. And we think, well, who's got the best product? And who has the best price? And we start shopping, and maybe we like this one, and we start shopping there pretty faithfully, and then all of a sudden we get some bad customer service, right? Or the product changes. And what do we do? Well, we just go to another one. And all this time we're evaluating the church by our own self-focused and our own self-centered interests without even considering how my involvement in church impacts other people. And so we have church hoppers who will go perhaps to a different church every Sunday or some for 18 months and then off to another one or others who will say, you know, I don't need the church. I'm going to follow Jesus, worship Jesus out on the lake fishing or on the golf course or sleeping in. Others maybe come to preaching but, but slip out as soon as they can. You know what all they have in common? is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. It is not to be lived in isolation. It is to be lived in the context of the church. I wonder if you, friend, have ever evaluated evaluating your involvement in the church. Do you ever think, okay, well, here's an opportunity for me to get involved. Will my involvement help others draw near to God? Will it give me an opportunity to encourage someone? Will, will it help me show the glory of God to those who are visiting or give me an opportunity to use my gifts? I think so often we evaluate whether we're going to plug in by some benefit versus cost to me. Right? Will I enjoy it? Will I get something out of it? And, and how tired am I? Right? What's the cost? What TV show may I have to miss? And then we begin to evaluate and we approach church involvement like we approach a box of Wheaties. Should I buy it or not? It's not God's intention. I mean, what if, what if, what if serving others and encouraging others and carrying the burden of other people was part of God's plan for your life and for my life in the context of a committed relationship in a faith community? What if God was more interested than not simply your health and your, your guidance and your career and even your family? And what if God was interested in even more than your own personal holiness? But He had a bigger plan. And that was to use you and others living life together to see holiness abound in other people's lives to encourage them and to care for them. In fact, I think that's what Ephesians is talking about. I don't know if you caught this. We're not going to work our way through this entire text. I just want you to note verse 22. Verse 22 and verse 23. And my hope is that you will see that God intends to glorify Himself, not simply through creation or even individual Christians, but primarily through the church. Verse 22, it says, And He, that's God the Father, put all things under His, that's Jesus, feet, and gave Him as head over all things, now note this phrase, to the church, which is His body. And so God has given everything to Jesus, uh, put Him as head over all things to Jesus, and He exercises that head for the benefit of the church. And why? Because the church, she says, is His body. And then note this phrase, the fullness of Him. The church is the fullness of Christ. At least that's what it intends to be. And so God has always been displaying His glory through Jesus. But the problem is Jesus is at the right hand of God right now. And so how does He intend to display His glory now? Well, He does intend to do so through the body of Christ, which is the church, which is the fullness of Him. He says, I'm going to unite my people by grace and fill them with the fullness of Christ, that it might be my body to display my glory here on this earth. And the churches throughout this world have been doing this since they have existed. Honoring God and displaying to the world what, what Christ is like. 
In fact, I appreciate, Mark, uh, your, your encouragement for us concerning the persecuted church. Um, I received a, an email uh, from a missionary in a Middle Eastern country that, that Hamilton Baptist Church is beginning, just beginning to engage with. I'm not going to mention the country for reasons of security. Most of you perhaps know uh, the place I'm talking about. And this little missionary has a, a little church there in a very dangerous place. And he wrote last week of his church service. I've shared this with some of you, but I figure it might benefit us all. Hopefully you could follow along. The subject line of the email just got back from our church and full of thanksgiving. He describes one brother had raced back overnight from his week's two, shift two hours away. Actually, he got a lift with a truck, no taxi. He was the first one there, first kings open in his lap, getting ready for the day's Old Testament reading. Despite not getting a wink of sleep, he participated bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, with a quick, and was quick to pray, and most encouragingly to me, eager to read from Psalm 95 in an unfamiliar dialect and an unfamiliar script, adjusting the dialect as he went along. It was an experiment leading and preaching with such a mixed group. Hopefully most people understood most of what I said. There was Korean, Shabak, Kurdish, Arabic, English spoken. Quite a Pentecostal day. Also, there were lots of people helping in lots of different ways without any leaders having to bark and to get tidying up done. Another golden moment was around the kitchen table chatting about humanitarian needs. The refugee brothers staying at our house came, praise the Lord, and we were discussing how we all need to give, whether rich or poor. I mentioned the widow who threw in her two small coins, and there was just this lovely twinkle in the eye of Brother S, who knows his Arabic Bible very well, the one whose 75 calves got nabbed by ISIS, slaughtered and handed out to local sympathizers as war booty. This is good for us. This often quiet brother stated. And in a dialect I could only partially follow, he quoted either James 1 or Romans 5 from memory about the trials being for our good father's plan to develop perseverance in us. Strikingly, one expat lost his job recently, and that trial became a blessing because we could explain that we, have all, we all have to look to God to provide for our needs. Again, a totally lovely moment when a Korean brother said, we mustn't worry about tomorrow, and a Kurdish brother immediately finished the sentence himself, tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. You think that church glorifies God? You think that honors God, that commitment to Him and to one another? The church is the body of Christ, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. In fact, look over in Ephesians chapter 3 and note verse 10. This verse radically changed my life about eight years ago. Radically changed my fundamental understanding of what it meant to pastor. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God has a plan to display His manifold wisdom. And His intent is not to simply do it through you and you and you and you, but through us, the church. When we act like Christians with one another, when we, we live for one another, and sometimes that's messy, and sometimes it is very painful, and it is not easy at times to do this. It's easier to walk away. But the world doesn't get it, draw any attention to that. That's what the world says. Of course you just walk away. But the church is to be different, isn't it? It's to be united to display the wisdom of God. By this all men you will know you are my disciples. By how you love one another. Our love therefore must be different than the love of the world. It must be a sacrificial love, a committed love. If we live in isolation, we can't carry each other's burdens or forgive one another or bear with one another. But when we come together, or we rearrange our lives, well, then God gets glory. God says, look at the church and you'll see the glory of my son. Look at what I am doing. And so for the sake of the glory of God and for the lost who need to see it, and for the sake of your brothers and sisters sitting next to you, let us throw away this self-centered, self-focused, consumer-oriented Christianity and commit ourselves to God's people. Commit ourselves to the church. We call that commitment at Hamilton Baptist Church membership. We, we, we describe it as, as being a church member. 
Now, I'm, I am aware that, and I've read these books and these articles that the, the church, growth, church growth experts say the, the last thing I need to be talking to you today about is church membership, unless I'm looking to decrease ours. It is not a popular topic today. In fact, they will say that you don't want to ask people for a steep commitment. You want to lower the bars as low as it can go, make the cost of entry as easy as possible. I would argue that it is probably the exact opposite. That I would argue that the reason the Western church seems to be dying by the year is that we don't ask for commitments. That we don't um, ask for people to give themselves to one another and it undercuts the whole point of the church. And so I want to teach you about church membership. And there's a problem that presents me when I try to teach on church membership is that there is no passage that says join a church. You ought to become a member of the church, which delights a lot of people, right? Because you can't find it. But you also can't find a verse that says God is triune. And yet we believe it. And we believe it because we, we put all Scripture together and we see that this is happening. I think the, the same is true for church membership. I believe the church is presented to us in such a way that, that in order for it to do what it's supposed to do, it has to have some defined group of people that are committed to one another. And so I want to work our way just this morning through the, the biblical implications of church membership. And then we're going to discuss how we apply that at Hamilton Baptist Church. We're going to be in many different passages this morning. Let me say, if you're visiting here this morning, um, I'm sorry. Um, this, is, this is normally not what we do here. Uh, we normally take a passage of Scripture and we explain it and apply it into our lives. And we're simply not going to do that here. I do this, I probably do a sermon like this once every six or seven years. And it's just your uh, blessed day that you come on this day. So um, <laughs> please come back and you may hear a little bit different. Um, if you're a non-Christian here this morning, you might be thinking, okay, great. We're going to do a very technical explanation of church membership and the implications thereof. And I, I'm just going to take a nap for the rest of the time. Well, I, I would encourage you that this might be interesting for you. Maybe it may, may not apply directly to you. certainly wouldn't if you're not a Christian. But it would be interesting for you to begin to learn how the Bible teaches Christians are to live with one another and, and what we're to live for. And then maybe you could consider, okay, well, what am I living for? And who am I living for? And then you could probably maybe compare and contrast and see if there's any differences and see if one way of life is more worthy than another. I think that might be an interesting thought experiment for you. And so perhaps that will help you. So let's begin. Church membership is, first of all, implied by love and support within the church. I'm going to be brief here. I've already gone over the one another's that we see in Scripture. 1 John 4 says, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Romans 15 says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 1 Peter 4 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Now, all these one another's and many, many other, uh, others is done, I think, with the Christians that you're living life together, that you're sharing life together, that you're interacting with on a regular basis. In order to do these things effectively, I think you need to put yourself in a community where you're committed in order to love this way and to be loved that way. Secondly, I believe church membership is implied by church leadership and submission. And so I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Here we'll find a description of church leadership. It's one of many in the Bible. In fact, while you're turning there, I'll refer you to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. The Bible says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Or 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the Bible is saying there are some people who are over another group of people. I think those groups need to be defined. I think we need to know who's over us, what group is over us, and, and what group is to be led by that group. 1 Peter 5 says, Elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Not shepherd the flock that is everywhere, but the flock that's among you. 1 Peter 5 goes on and says, Not domineering over those in your charge. And so evidently God has given people to the charge of a group of elders. They're entrusted to care for a flock, to rule a flock, to shepherd a flock, to admonish a flock, and to be examples to a particular flock. 
This is taught us here in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. In fact, you'll see that there are implications both for members of a church and leaders of a church. And so note verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no, of no advantage to you. And so you see right there, it says to uh, th- these Christians that they are to obey their leaders and they are to submit to their leaders and are to do so in such a way that gives them joy. Now this, this idea may be foreign to you. you. Perhaps you have never heard this preached before, uh, the church's obedience to their leaders. The reason why is leaders don't like to preach this text. Right? This is someone uncomfortable even for me to talk about. And yet here it is. In fact, when we think about we're joining a church, we think, well, do I like the preaching? Uh, well, well uh, is there parking? Uh, we think, are the seats comfortable? Are the ki- do I like the kids' programs? Right? Uh, uh, is the, do, I, do I appreciate the worship? Does it help me to draw near God? And all of these things I think are probably valuable considerations to take into effect. But how many people actually think, will I be able to freely and joyfully submit and obey the leadership in which God has put there? And certainly that's a, a huge requirement, it seems to me, as God lays it out for them. But the question then is, well, who are these leaders in whom you are to submit? Well, he tells you right there, your leaders. So not every pastor throughout Loudoun County or Northern Virginia. You're to submit and obey the leaders that God has given you, the leaders of your particular church. In fact, there's implications even more for the leaders who are leading that church. Every pastor or elder knows this first well. As he tells us why people are to obey and to submit to their leaders. For he says in verse 17, For they are keeping watch over your souls. And then you note, as those who will have to give an account. And so the Bible tells us that every pastor, every elder, one day will stand before God. And God will ask that pastor, that elder, to give an accounting for the spiritual care that he has given to the flock entrusted to him. Well, I plan to have a conversation with God about that. He, well, he plans to have a conversation with me about that. Um, and so this is what God tells us to do. It's very sobering for us. For instance, if I got a babysitter and, and took a leg or an out, we're going to go out for a nice night. And we, we got someone brave enough to come and watch our kids um, and, and handle the, all seven of them. And we said, you know, listen, um, can you put them down sometime around eight? And then and maybe uh, don't give them too much coffee. And, um, right? and, and maybe you could pick up the mess that they make afterwards. That would be great. We'll be home by 10. And we pull up at 10 uh, down the driveway and we hear music blaring out the window and there's ice cream on the ceiling and the television's gone and the children are missing. There's a problem there, right? We're going to have a conversation with the babysitter. What happened? Because we've entrusted them with something very precious to us. You are far more precious to God than my children are to me. You are so precious to God that He let His Son be nailed to a cross that you might become his child, that he might bring you into his family. That's how much he loves you. And so when Paul gathered the Ephesian elders together in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which God has given you to care for that he obtained by his own blood. It's sobering for every man who steps into a position like this. My question for you is, who will I give an account for? Is it every Christian in Northern Virginia? No. It is for the flock in which God has given me to shepherd. It is for Hamilton Baptist Church. But if that's the case, we have to have a way of identifying Hamilton Baptist Church. And this, so their membership is implied here. We also see it implied with church discipline. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18. In fact, we don't have time for that. Why don't you go to 1 Corinthians 5? <laughs> Matthew 18, I'll summarize for you. Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, you probably know this passage, verse 15, go to him and tell him his, his fault. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If he does not, get two more and go and speak to him that everything might be validated by two or three witnesses. If he does not listen to you, you then go and you tell the church. And if he does not t- listen to the church, you treat him like a tax collector. Okay? And so, so who's the church that we're telling? 
Right? The, the church is involved in the discipline of this, this wayward man. And so we need to have a church and a definable group that is the church in order to bring him to these people. We see this applied in 1 Corinthians 5. And now 1 Corinthians is a crazy, um, you know, Corinth is a crazy church. As you know, there's a lot going on there. They're getting drunk at Lord's Communion. They are suing one another. They are dividing in little groups. And some follow Paul and some follow Apollos. And some, another group follow Jesus. Right? I'd be with the Jesus group. And they have all these divisions that are taking place here. But probably the, the height of their, their sin is found in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And so in the church there is a situation where a man is having sexual relationships with his stepmother. By the way, this is not a secret affair. This has been reported to Paul who is far away from Corinth. Everybody knows about this. And therefore he says in verse 2, And you are arrogant. Who's arrogant? The church. Second person plural. Y'all are arrogant, he says. You all are. Well, they're not doing anything. Why are they arrogant? What's what's the problem with them? Read on. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Please understand this is not a man who's struggling with sin and just trying to have victory over it and repenting and fighting against it. This is a man who's boasting his sin, living it out. And he says, church, you ought to be mourning for his sin and for yours for doing nothing. And you know what you ought to do? You ought to remove him from among you. You ought to be removed. But if there's this removing, there has to be an in in order to be an out. It has to be defined in order to to ask him to to leave the church as they discipline. And they do this out of love, by the way. They they love him and therefore want to restore him. We'll see that in verse 5. But jump down to verse 9. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, he wants to clarify. This is a previous letter he wrote. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. And so he's drawing a distinction between those in the church and those in the world. We go on, he says, verse 11, But I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those who are inside the church with whom you are to judge? So if there is an inside, if there's an outside, there needs to be an inside. He goes on and says in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. There's a purging. There's a removal from him in, from that church. Now, I understand even reading this passage may sound totally crazy to some of you. And you might think accountability and church discipline and and purging. You may be glad you're not a member of this church after that. Right? I don't want to be in those. What are you talking about? Who does that anymore? I think we have two options for us. We could do what's wise according to our culture. We could do what's easy and what's comfortable. Or we could obey the Bible. And I think you know where I stand. I'm going with Jesus every time. I, I think that in the end, it will be proven that God actually knows what he's doing. That he is actually wise. And so we see it implied in, in church uh, discipline and restoration. Lastly, we see it implied by church accountability and governance. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So the question is that, you may, oh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me. You may wonder what happened to this guy. So what do they do? But we actually pick up the story here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And Paul writes his second letter after the church dealt with this individual. Verse 5 in 2 Corinthians 2, it says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put too severely to all of you. So who's this guy who's caused pain? Well, it's the man he was referring to in 1 Corinthians 5. For we read in verse 6, For such a one... This, pun- the pun- this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You see what he did? He repented. He said, I turned my back upon this. God, help me. How could I ever have done that? And he says to the church, receive him now. Love him and reaffirm your love for him. Otherwise, he'd be overwhelmed with sorrow that he can't return to his community. And so he calls for for them to receive him. But you notice in verse 6 that he was originally punished by the majority. It evidently wasn't unanimous. 
There was a vote that took place and some were against disciplining him, but the majority was in favor. My question is, if you have, you have to have a vote there in the church, how, how do you decide who's voting? Who has that authority? In my mind, in, in light of the love and support and the leadership and submission, the discipline and restoration, accountability and governance, you, you get what Christians have called for centuries membership. A, a defined group of believers in a committed relationship. Church membership. And, and other churches do this much differently than we do. Many churches, you could come down when I'm done preaching, and you say, I want to join, and we all say, hallelujah, and, and you join. Other churches, when you're baptized, you're immediately a member of that church, and, and there's nothing wrong with those processes at all. And other churches have different processes. We at Hamilton Baptist Church do things a little different. We, we make it a little more costly. We have a class, three-and-a-half-hour class on Saturday morning that we ask you to attend. We want you to know what we believe. We want you to know where we're headed. We want you to know how we're organized. We don't want you to be surprised two years later and you say, we believe what? Right? We want to lay that out. This is who we are. We'll get, get, get a chance for you to get to know us. After that, we ask you to meet with a couple elders that we can make sure we're on the same page with the gospel. They can hear your testimony of faith and know how to pray for you. Know how to begin to shepherd you as your pastors. And then we, we ask for you to join us in covenanting together as members of Hamilton Baptist Church, a church covenant. Now, a church covenant is different than a confession of faith. Confession of faith is what we believe. A church covenant is how we aspire to live with one another. You have one of those covenants in your bulletin. I encourage you to pull that out now. You see there at the top, it says Hamilton Baptist Church Covenant proposed. This is something that we've been talking with the church about since January. And we have submitted proposals and drafts and received feedback and and rewritten and redrafted and submitted back to the church and all along praying through this process. The reason why we want to have a, a church covenant that accurately reflects what the Bible tells us we are to be to one another is we want to be clear what it means to be a member of Hamilton Baptist Church. I think if you ask perhaps many people, what does it mean to be a member of your church, they would stare back at you blankly, as if they've never considered that. And you would push them, they would say, well, I think it means we get to vote. And so, was that it? Well, when they need volunteers, I get an email. And I think that's about all you're going to get. We want to be clear what it means to be a member of Hamilton Baptist Church. We want to be able to say, well, as a member of Hamilton Baptist Church, I carry other people's burdens and I share when their joy and I edify them with my speech and we help each other hold on to our confession of faith and we worship together all on this mission to make disciples for the glory of God amongst our neighbors and the nations. My hope is that you'll see this covenant as an as a explanation of what the church is supposed to be and I hope in making these vows... Uh, It will help us to become that. I mentioned it's been rewritten because the covenant we're currently under was was written by um, another profession. Let me just put it that way. And this profession is very talented in a lot of things, but writing covenants is not one of them. And so we did not think it accurately reflected what the Bible tells us that we want to be. And so we have rewritten this as your elders. We plan to keep, if this document is accepted before you as a church, we are going to affirm it periodically. When we take the Lord's Supper together, it's going to be in our bulletin. Occasionally, we will um, let it be a living document to help guide us and remind us who we are supposed to be. Our hope as the elders is to vote on this in our annual church members meeting on November 12th. And if it is affirmed by the church, we will embrace it on Sunday, December 7th. I also let you know that we will no longer be asking people to sign the covenant, but we will be asking them to verbally affirm the covenant. And so these are some of the changes we're going to make. We could talk more about that at the members' meeting, but for now I thought I would read it to you. You notice we begin by defining who it is that could be in this covenant. It says, We who by divine grace believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender our lives to Him... And we who have been baptized as Christians in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, covenant with one another as one body in Christ. This describes who we are in covenanting together, the grace in which we have received. You also notice that the next three paragraphs are simply taken from Hebrews 10, verses 22 through 25, the text I preached on last week. 
And so this may, the first sentence of these next three paragraphs may sound familiar to you. Together we will draw near to God in worship. We will delight in the glory of God, depend on the presence of God, grow in the knowledge of God, and submit to the word of God as the all-sufficient authority in our lives and in his church. Together we will hold fast to the hope we profess. We will strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge and holiness, sustain its worship of Christ, participate in its ordinances, and adhere to its doctrines. We will maintain personal devotions, educate our children in our faith, and seek the salvation of the lost. And this last paragraph is how we will treat one another. Together we will spur one another on to love and good deeds. We will meet with one another consistently, pray for one another regularly, and serve one another selflessly. We will share each other's joys, uh, bear each other's burdens, and aid each other in sickness and distress. We will edify one another with our speech and encourage one another with our example. We will be slow to take offense, ready to seek reconciliation. We will humbly and gently confront one another, willingly receive correction, and eagerly work for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We will give cheerfully and generously to the support of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will, if we are called by God to move from this place as soon as possible, unite with another church where we can carry out the principles of God's word. When we struggle to keep this covenant, we will rejoice in the grace of Jesus Christ that covers all our sin. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. I hope that this will become more and more who we are as Hamilton Baptist Church. Is this our idea? No. In fact, if you read your Bible, you will find covenants. God is always relating to people by covenant, whether it be Noah or Abraham or Moses, David, people of Israel. But we not only see covenants between God and people, we see covenants between people and people, David and Jonathan, for instance. We know that the people entered into covenant at the end of Moses' life, at the end of Joshua's life, and in the time of Nehemiah. We know that the marriage, according to Scripture, is presented to us as a covenant. Churches have been using church covenants since the 16th century, when the Protestant Reformation began. Up to that point, you were born into the church. You were baptized, and you were immediately a member of the church, uh, whether you believed or not. This is who you were. In fact, they even had a, a Latin phrase, ex opere operato. By the work working, which simply means that the sacraments affect you whether you believe or not. So if you went and took communion or mass, it would benefit you. You would receive grace whether you believed in Christ or not. Well, there's a Protestant Reformation that people begin to say, no, wait a second. We need to believe in Jesus in order to be part of his people. And they started to gather together as churches those only who believed. And that sounds like a no-brainer to us, but it was incredibly hard. And they received persecution and hardship and suffering because of that as, as they withdrew with one another. And they said, we're going to be committed to one another in the midst of this. We need to covenant with one another. And they begin to write covenants for one another as to how we are supposed to live in this gathered church. The first Baptist covenant was in 1640 in Broadmead Baptist Church. The first Baptist church being started in 1611 by John Smith in Holland. 29 years later, we see a Baptist church in England having a, a covenant together. The first colonial American covenant was in 1663 with Swansea Baptist Church. And this church, Hamilton Baptist Church, in 1889, adopted a church covenant and has had one ever since. Now, I understand that these are not popular today. As I mentioned, there's a, a movement to lower the bar of entry um, for people to come into the church. And, and in fact, the churches are moving away from understanding themselves as a faith community to a place where spiritual services are provided. And if all you're doing is providing spiritual services, you don't need a covenant. It's more of a contractual relationship. And some of you know what, what it's like to have a contract, right? If you have a mortgage, cell phone, cable bill, right? You're under contract, right? And you can't wait to get out of that contract, typically. Right? You say, I'll give you 50 bucks to Verizon a month and like another 70 for fees so I could use this phone. And you're in there for two years. You're not in a relationship with Verizon. You're under contract with Verizon. But when we go to a marriage, for instance, we see a covenant. Right? And this is why we love marriages. This is why ladies cry at marriages and 
at, at weddings. And, and, and we all say, oh, isn't that wonderful? At weddings, because the, the man and the, and the, the soon-to-be wife, they, they stop looking at you and stop looking at the pastor and they look at each other and they, and they begin to exchange vows and they begin to say, I'm in this relationship. I'm committing everything I have to this relationship. It's why we love weddings. If they entered into a contract, trust me, you would not love it as much. Right? You would not cry at a contractual wedding. Right? I agree to mow the lawn as long as you cook dinner. Right? Well, I agree to cook dinner as long as you make money to buy food. Okay, well, why don't we both, you know, we both could do the dishes together. I'll do it on Tuesday and you do them on Wednesday. Right? You would not be going, oh, isn't this beautiful? Right? You would go back to the gift table and pick up your blender and take it home. Right? Because you know this thing's going to last like six months. Right? You don't want you want someone to say, for better or for worse, I am in. I'm in. For richer or for poor, I'm in. I'm all in. Right? Some of you know what it's like to go through those poor days. My wife pay, paid for my family six fifty an hour and working in the inner city preschool in Durham. And we grew to love each other when that's all we had. Right? And for for sickness and health, whether we're all healthy or whether we're sick, I'm in. I am committing myself not to receive services back from you. I am committing myself to a relationship with you. I'm in. This is what the church is called to be. That we don't come demanding services, thinking, where's my greeting? I mean, I read the Bible. It says you know, we're supposed to greet one another in the Lord, and I've been here 10 minutes, and no one's greeted me. Right? I would like my greeting now. You're, Pastor, you're supposed to encourage me, and we're almost done, hopefully, and, and you haven't encouraged me once yet, and I want my encouragement now. We don't come with that attitude. We come with what can I give and how can I support and who can I strengthen and love and and bear with one another. Because the world says run away when you're not being served. Run away when you're not happy there. We can't take that attitude in the church. And I'm here to bless others and encourage others. I hope I get encouraged. I hope I get blessed. But even if I don't, I am in. I'm committed. I am here. To create a people for God that we might propel each other to Jesus for the glorious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God wants to say, look at my son displayed in Hamilton Baptist Church. Let me show you one passage as we end. Go to the book of Nehemiah, if you will. I know our time is almost up. Nehemiah is this beautiful picture of God's people coming together. If you remember, God had a people in a city called Jerusalem. And then that city had a beautiful temple. And around that beautiful temple, he had a beautiful wall. And God's people didn't follow God. They followed other gods. And God kept saying, come back to me, come back to me. And they wouldn't. And so God says, I'm going to have to discipline my people. And, and so he did. He sent an invading army. And it, it destroyed the walls and then destroyed the temple and then took God's people from God's city into exile. But, but God said, I only do this for 70 years. And he sent God's people back. And the first thing they did when they got back is they built the temple. That's the book of Ezra. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book. We've divided into two. But book of Ezra, they built the temple. And then we get to Nehemiah in chapter Nehemiah 1 through 7, they build the walls. And, and, and then chapter 8 through 13, it's God rebuilding his people. And so we're here in, in Nehemiah 9, and it's right after this incredible worship service where Nehemiah gets up on a platform way up high above the whole people of Israel, and he simply opens his Bible, and everyone falls down on their face and begins to shout, Amen and Amen, and they begin to worship God and, and cry out to Him as he begins to read from God's Word from sun up to noon, just reading God's Word to them. And then they begin to pray, and their prayer goes like this in Nehemiah 9, We sinned in Egypt, but you had grace on us, and we sin in the desert, but you had grace on us. And we sinned when we were in the promised land, but you had grace on us. And we sinned in exile, but you've had grace on us. And there's this wonderful, incredible celebration of the grace of God that has brought them back to this place at this time. And so we come to Nehemiah 9 and verse 38, and they say, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our princes and Levites and our priests. We are covenanting together to be God's people. We are writing it down. We are putting the name of our, names of our leaders upon it. You read Nehemiah 10, you'll see the obligations, the covenant they make with one another. They say that, that we are, are going to um, encourage one another and guard each other's purity and help each other keep the commandments and worship together and give to each other and provide for one another. And we're going to become this people. You know what happened when they to turn over to Nehemiah 12. You think people like this, committed to one another, is going to glorify God, give Him attention. Well, they have this incredible celebration of worship and covenanting to one another. 
And, and there they are, and, and they're gathered together. They've rebuilt these walls. And people, when they came, their neighbors said, you can't rebuild the walls. You're incompetent. In fact, your God is incompetent. There's no way you can do this. In fact, they mock them and they say, even if a fox would climb up on the wall, the wall will come tumbling down. That's how incompetent you are. And that's how lame your God is. And so there they are gathered together. And you, they say, you know what would be cool? Let's climb up on the wall. And let's march around the city on the wall. And so they get up on the wall and they begin to march around. And you see this great summary verse in Nehemiah 12 and verse 43. And they offered great sacrifice that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. There's a lot of joy going on here. I don't know if you notice this. But notice the end. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Why? Because they were loud. Because they wanted the glory of God to be known. So the nations would know what happened to them, what happened according to the power of this great God. He is not incompetent. He is glorious and powerful and mighty. And so we want to be clear what he's doing, that he is restoring the people for his name's sake. May God do it today in Hamilton Baptist Church. May He create a people who are committed to one another to make disciples for the glory of His renown, that we would rejoice together and forgive together and meet together and pray together and worship together so that our neighbors would look at the love that we have and how we support one another, how we fight for each other's marriages, how we encourage one another and admonish in love. And they will say, they worship a great God. And then we can say, well, you come on in. You worship Him too. Gather together with us that we might proclaim the the name of our God. Friends, I think that's worth giving your life to. I think that's worth being intentional and passionate and committed to. May God do it here. Father in heaven, we pray that you would continue to sanctify your people, Hamilton Baptist Church. Yet you would mold us together as a people who, who are willing to commit lives to one another. That we would become a reflection of Jesus into a watching world. Father, the church is not a country club. It's not a cold, judgmental institution. It's not a legacy of a bygone age. And it's not simply an irrelevant religious organization. It has the power of God resting upon it. It is the fullness of Christ. May we see that. May you help us to give ourselves to that. And may you waken, my friend's heart, that there is a God who beckons him or her to come even now by his grace, by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.